The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. How's everyone? Um, just want to once again emphasize um, what was shared in the um, prayer focus for this morning about what's happening in our nation. I, I think all of us are recognizing uh, what sort of uncharted waters we're en- entering into here and the fracturing of our country, um, cops being intentionally lured into ambushes where they're being shot, the Black Lives Matter movement, and any of you who watched that video, either of those two videos in Baton Rouge as well as the one in Minnesota, you realize... Um, you know, what horrific scenes happened in those places. And so um, it's so hard. You know, everyone's in the news channels are taking sides. You know, are you with the cops? Are you with the Black Lives Matter movement? And um, it, it's at some level so hard to deconstruct this and say, these are the villains and these are the victims. And I, I think, as was shared today, just so much prayer uh, and healing needs to be offered as the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, for the nation that we're living in. Um, at some level, to unpack it all and to heal it all is really a, a divine work that only God can do as we really come together as a nation. And so let's, let's really be interceding and praying for that situation. Okay. Um, we are in the midst of now a very brief four-part series in the book of Ruth. And so last week, we looked at chapter 1, And today I want to look at uh, chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. Um, And so it's a bit of a long passage. These are long scripture readings. But I think it's helpful to read the whole text so that we are all on the same page with what's happening in the actual story. So you can follow along in your Bibles or you could read uh, what's showing up on the screen. And it says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she, her, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever you are, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And then she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. 
May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. And mealtime Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. They, then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until, my, until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls. Because if someone else, in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this drama that took place thousands of years ago in a place around the other side of the world is yet a story that's part of our story. Because it's ultimately your story, a story of your love for your people and how that love is even present for us in this day. And so open our eyes to see the lessons that we can find in this passage and see what your will is, what your heart is toward us through the story of this woman Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi and this man Boaz and how together they ended up living for your purposes and walking in your will out of obedience to you. And so open our eyes to see the truth in these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we began in this first chapter of Ruth. And the story began with this Jewish family of four, a husband and wife and their two sons. They lived in Israel in the town of Bethlehem, but because of a famine that entered the land, they ended up resettling in this neighboring country known as Moab in order to find food and relief from the famine. And during those years in Moab, the father, Elimelech, ends up dying, leaving Naomi to be a widow. Her two sons end up marrying Moabite women, and they both end up dying prematurely before they could have any children. This leaves the mother, Naomi, utterly alone with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And after everything that she has gone through in her life, losing her husband, losing her two sons, um, in a strange land because there was no food in her homeland, um, she comes to the conclusion that God is against me. God has become my enemy. He's out to get me. 
She has gotten to a place of understanding life such that there is no higher purpose. There is nothing redeemable about her broken life. And so she ends up urging her daughters-in-law, go back home to your home country. Look for new husbands. Start your lives over. It's too late for me. And by sending them away, she knows that she's returning them to their foreign gods. But she's aiming pretty low at this point in her life. It doesn't even really matter to her. All she wishes for her daughters-in-law is that they could find some small corner of happiness by finding a new husband for themselves to help with all the pain and the loss that they've been experiencing. As I mentioned in that message last week, when we lose faith that God is in control, uh, that there's a higher plan, that there's a higher purpose, when we, when we lose sight of that, we're, we're reduced to an almost animal-like existence, aren't we? It, it really becomes a very self-serving survival instinct that kicks in. I just want to get through this life. I, I just want to make it through another day. That's all I'm asking. That's all I want from my life at this point. How different this was compared with Ruth, who though she wasn't born among God's people, ended up clinging to Naomi and insisting on returning her, with her to Bethlehem. As I said last week, devoting herself to Naomi very well may have meant for her that she would have died a childless widow. And as I said last week, this was more than about simply family loyalty. As it was made very clear in chapter 1, it was her faith in God that enabled her to make such a courageous and self-sacrificing decision. What she was in essence was saying was, your God will be my God. I will put my trust in that God as the center point and I'll worry about everything else after that. God will take care of me. Well, as we continue the story in chapter 2, Ruth offers to look for a field where she could pick some grain in order to put some food on the table for both herself and her mother-in-law. This is now just about eating, surviving, right? What Ruth is basically doing is she's banking on a commandment that's found in the law of Moses that in which God commanded his people when you harvest your fields, leave some food behind for the poor, for the marginalized. There's numerous passages like that in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 to 22, it says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, a sheaf is basically the bundles of grain that you would gather in the harvest. And it says, if you forgot one and left it there, it says, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And then he says in verse 22, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. So he says, when you harvest your fields, your crops, your vineyards, don't be so OCD about trying to get every last grape, you know? Be a little messy with it. Be a little sloppy. Let some of the stuff fall to the wayside 
so that the poor can come in after you. The widows, the orphans, the foreigners. And they can pick up some of that so that they have something to eat and live as well. We're told in verse 3 that of all the fields that Ruth could have picked, she, quote, just happened to pick this guy's field named Boaz. And he happens to be a relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, what we're going to see as the story of Ruth unfolds is that there's no doubt that the plot is driven forward primarily by these decisions, these choices that the people make, like Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, okay? But several times in the story, the author reminds us that God is also at work orchestrating things in the background so that on the outward side of it, at the surface level, it looks like these are just pure coincidences, But the suggestion of the author of the book of Ruth is saying is there's a divine finger behind all this. God is orchestrating these so-called coincidences in a way that the human drama ends up having a far more amazing impact than could be possible if only people were in charge. God is moving the pieces He is causing these divine appointments for people to run into each other. He is setting up the timing just right to accomplish what he is trying to do. That is the perspective of faith, is that in the heart of faith, there are no coincidences. There's no random luck. But God is behind everything that is happening in our lives. In another seeming coincidence, Boaz happens to be passing through the fields at that same moment where Ruth is gleaning and he finds out from his foreman who she is, that she's been working almost nonstop since the morning, working diligently to pick up these few scraps that are remaining on the ground left by his workers. And by working in these fields, Ruth has put herself in an incredibly dangerous and vulnerable position. We have to remember that this story of Ruth is taking place in the days of the judges, which was a chaotic and dangerous period in Israel's history when it said that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was all kinds of sin and abuse happening in that time. And Ruth is among the desperate poor. She is a foreigner, a widow with no husband or male relatives to protect her. And now she is working outside of the city in these rural fields among men where anything can happen. You've got to recognize what an incredibly vulnerable situation Ruth was in. Understanding all of this, Boaz approaches Ruth and tells her not to work in anyone else's field, but to only harvest in his field alone. And then he reassures her, I've talked to the men in my field and I told them no one lay a hand on her. Don't touch her. Not only that, but he says, I've also instructed them, whenever you're thirsty, go and help yourself to the water that belongs to my workers. You have free access to my water. But it doesn't end there. At mealtime, Boaz invites Ruth to his own table, and he says, eat with me. And then we're told that she ate until she was stuffed and couldn't eat anymore and had leftovers. But there's more. I feel like it's an infomercial, right? But there's one more thing, right? Um, on top of that, in order, he orders his men 
to not stop her if she happens to pick among the sheaves. You know, the poor were only permitted to pick the scraps that were left over, but he says, if she happens to pick from the bundles that you've gathered, says, don't yell at her, but let her have access to even that. Okay? And then he even gives one more instruction. He says, I want you to intentionally make accidents where you spill some of the grain. That's what he even says. is like, make it look like an accident. But as you're walking, go, oh, just kind of like drop the barley as you're walking so that she has even more that she gets to pick up. By the end of that day, we're told that Ruth had gathered an ephah of grain. And you're saying, wow, an ephah. That's amazing. <laughs> All right? An ephah is basically about 35 pounds of barley, okay? You guys, if you're Asian, you know those 40-pound bags of rice, right? You get at the Korean grocery store. You know how hard it is to lift one of those, right? That's what Ruth was carrying home that day, okay? She practically needed a wheelbarrow to bring it home, right? And so it's no surprise that when Ruth comes home, Naomi is in disbelief. Where in the world did you glean today? Costco? You know, it's like, nobody gleans scraps and comes back with almost 40-pound bag of grain. What in the world happened here? Well, I want to ask simply, what's going on here? What's going on? How do we explain Boaz's behavior in chapter 2? What motivated this guy to go so out of his way to be so generous to this woman, Ruth. I think there is an incredibly strong temptation to explain what happened in the field that day as love at first sight, right? Um, (laughs) That should be the cover of the book, right? Um, That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? In fact, many people assume that Ruth was a beautiful woman. In almost all of the illustrations of Ruth, they portray her as very beautiful. And you know the truth is, beautiful women seem to live charmed lives, don't they? The rules that the rest of us have to live by don't seem to apply to them. They have a way of getting whatever they want. They seem to go through life going, everybody is so nice. Well, nice to you. Um, But the truth is this. We're never told anything about Ruth's physical appearance in the book. We have to make a, we have to be careful about making an argument from silence. But interestingly, the Bible does seem to point out when certain women are beautiful, right? It highlights that, like Abraham's wife, Sarah, we're told she was exceedingly beautiful. Or Queen Esther, she's another one, right? We're told she was knockout dead gorgeous, right? What I'm saying is is this. It's very possible that Ruth looked less like a beauty queen and more like the girl next door, okay? Um... Some of you don't like that picture, right? If you can go back. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Some of you 
are like, this is such a beautiful story in chapter 2, right? It's like a Harlequin romance. And maybe some of your women, your heart, oh, Boaz, what a dream, you know? Like, this makes your heart flutter, right? And it sounds like such a beautiful love story. And you, you just got to imagine that romance was in the air, right? And I think if that's what actually Ruth looks like, it kind of kills the story a little, right? It's like, don't do that to me. Don't, don't put that image in my head, you know? Um, in fact, Ruth herself seems genuinely confused by Boaz's excessive generosity toward her. And he says, why are you treating me like this? She's confused. She doesn't understand. And his response to her has nothing to do with her looks or his attraction to her. Instead, he points out how, he came, how she came all the way to Israel as an act of faith, taking refuge in God, trusting that God would take care of her. In other words, it wasn't about any physical beauty that Ruth possessed, but simply God's loving care over her that caused Boaz to show favor to her. Even Naomi seems to recognize God's hand in Boaz's kindness because in verse 20 says, The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he had not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That, that, that second sentence is not speaking about Boaz. It's speaking about God. What a change from chapter 1, where Naomi believes that God had become her enemy, had turned against her, and now she is beginning to hope again. She is beginning to believe once again that God is good to her. You know, in the message I preached last week, I talked about how part of the reason why Naomi may have believed that God was against her was because I think, in truth, she knew that she and her husband had made some questionable, if not, frankly, sinful choices in their life. Why did they choose Moab, a country cursed by God, who had become an enemy to God's people by the way they treated them? And we know that Naomi's sons took Moabite women, which was explicitly forbidden as a commandment from God. And so there's this nagging question. Was the suffering that Naomi and her family was going through an act of justice by God? Was it punishment for the sins they had committed? It's hard to know because we're actually not told this expressly. But I think one of the things that we have to see of what's happening in the story of Ruth at a broader level is that regardless of the poor choices that people are making, regardless of the lack of wisdom that they display or the lack of faith that they demonstrate, one of the overriding messages in the book of Ruth is how God's grace triumphs even over justice, that there is mercy to be found in the arms of God. This is what it means to find refuge in God. It's like what Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? Yet will I return to him and find my refuge in him? Because I cannot explain why everything is happening in my life. I don't, I don't have good reasons for why all this suffering is happening, 
But what I know as the bedrock truth is God is good and God is merciful. And if I'm going to fall on anyone, it's going to be him that I'm going to surrender my life to. This is what it means to put our trust in him. I want to ask you about your life. You know, I mean, when you suffer, there's a lot of questions, isn't there? Um, sometimes you wonder, is what I'm going through self-inflicted? Did I do this to myself? My own stupid choices. Maybe sometimes you're asking, am I being victimized by the sin of somebody else? I did nothing wrong here. It's this person that's hurting me. Or am I just being swept up by events that are so much bigger than me? I just feel like I'm a pawn. I'm just being tossed like the waves in the sea. Or maybe all of the above. In other words, when I try to grasp suffering, and when I try to find reasons for why I'm going through what I'm going through, it can be very problematic to come to clear answers that make sense in our life. But I think one of the things that the book of Ruth is showing us is stupid choices are being made. Bad decisions are being had. A lack of faith is being demonstrated. But still, in our day of trouble, God alone is our refuge. The only one that we can entrust ourselves to. Even in my sin, even in the failures of others, I throw myself in the arms of God. And that's what Ruth did. And out of that faith, God honored it and sent his servant Boaz to provide for her and her mother-in-law. In talking about God's refuge, there's one more point that I want to make. I believe that Boaz sees his own kindness as an answer to her prayers and trusting her situation to God. I think that's basically what Boaz is saying. Even as he blesses Ruth and says, may God answer your prayers, may God help you, I think Boaz is recognizing God wants to use me as an agent of that grace that you have asked him for. We've seen how God's sovereign care over Ruth and Naomi has been operating in these mysterious and cosmic levels, orchestrating and arranging seeming coincidences. But I want to say this. I think the primary means through which God shows his grace in this story is through ordinary people who make themselves available to be used by God to be a blessing to others. This is what Ruth did for Naomi. And this is what Boaz did for Ruth. Dean Ulrich writes, God's grace has a human face. Boaz was more than a kind and gentle philanthropist. His first words in the book indicate his devotion to Israel's covenant God. His actions must be understood in view of covenantal grace. Because God has dealt graciously with him, he treated others similarly. Once in a while, God advances his kingdom with a big splash on the stage of history. But more often than not, he increases his glory through the quiet, persistent deeds of gratitude and kindness that never make the newspaper.
This is such an essential element to what it means to experience God's grace is that then we in turn become agents of that same grace to others. Have you ever heard those testimonies of people who prayed when they were struggling financially and then they received this anonymous envelope with just the right amount of money that they need? Right? We've all heard these stories and they're amazing, right? Sometimes down to the last dollar, the money is there. And haven't you ever wished that you could receive an envelope like that? (laughs) Maybe you've complained to God, how come stuff like that never happens to me? Why doesn't anyone ever send me one of those envelopes, you know? But can I ask you this? Have you ever prayed whether you could be the sender of one of those envelopes instead of asking just to receive an envelope like that? What I'm asking is this. In your understanding of God's grace in your life, is it even in the realm of possibility that God might use you like that? Or what I'm asking you is really this. Is your heart so closed to that kind of work of God in your life? that the truth is that's not even a real possibility. You see, I think what we see in the story of Ruth is that when God is at work among people, we're all recipients of that grace, but we're also all called to be agents of that grace. That's how God primarily accomplishes his kingdom work, is by the way that he moves our hearts to be a blessing to other people. But here is the truth. This is the worrisome observation that I see in the church today is that for many of us, we only see grace as a one-way river. It all just flows to us, right? It's just all give me, give me, give me. This is what I need. This is what I want, God. Deliver for me. And yet what God is inviting us to see in the story of Ruth is that inasmuch as you are receiving his grace, He also expects you to be an agent of that grace, to bless others in his name. Look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, verse 16 to 17. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Do you see the question that John is asking? If you are genuinely claiming that God's love is in you, that you have received that love, that mercy, that kindness, then the reality of that love has to be shown in how it flows out of you to others. If it always, if you're a dead end to that love, in other words, if it only flows one way, it really calls into question the sincerity of that faith. Have you really experienced the grace of God in your life? John Orberg has this interesting quote here that I want to read. Everybody, every human being on earth has a mission. We were all put here for a purpose. Organizations like businesses, churches, and schools have them too. 
Leaders love to think about mission, love to cast vision for the mission, love to strategize about mission, love to achieve mission, love to celebrate mission. And everybody has a shadow mission. Our lives and the lives of the groups we're part of can drift into the pursuit of something unworthy and dark. You and I were created to have a mission in life. We were made to make a difference. But if we do not pursue the mission for which God designed and gifted us, we will find a substitute. We cannot live in the absence of purpose. Without an authentic mission, we will be tempted to drift on autopilot, to let our lives center around something that is unworthy, something selfish, something dark, a shadow mission. Now, I'm guessing that for most of you in this room, you've never heard of that term, a shadow mission. But I think as soon as you hear it, it makes sense, doesn't it? As Ortberg points out, all of us are compelled to live for some purpose in life. Whatever that purpose may be, you can't live your life without some kind of mission to live for. And what Ortberg is saying is that if you aren't living intentionally by faith for the purposes that God has set for you, then there is a darker shadow mission that's going to drive your life, a more self-centered, self-serving one. When Orberg was first introduced to this term shadow mission himself, he says that he was at this uh, adventure camp for men out in the wilderness. And he said that gathered around a campfire, the speaker there talked about this idea of a shadow mission. And the speaker at the camp said to these men in the camp, my shadow mission is to watch TV and pleasure myself while the world goes to hell. Now, this, this was actually not a Christian camp. And so he, this is a euphemism. He used actually much raw language. But he said, my shadow mission is to watch TV, pleasure myself, while the world goes to hell. And he said, Orbrook said, a nervous laughter rolled throughout that circle of men. And the speaker said to these men, I'm going to say it one more time, only this time I want you to listen and not laugh. My shadow mission is to watch TV and pleasure myself while the world goes to hell. At that time, there was dead silence around that circle as every one of those men understood the gravity of the confession that this man was making. And I want to ask you that question this morning. What is your shadow mission? What is your shadow mission? What is the honest mission statement of your life, regardless of whatever values you claim with your mouth? What does your lifestyle reveal about your mission statement for your life? It's interesting to think, what if all of us were required to put the honest mission statement of our life on a sign in front of our house? I drive around to every one of your houses and read it. Maybe yours might read, avoiding conflict at all costs since 1987. <laughs> or maybe if I drove to your house, it would say, judging the world one person at a time, right? <laughs> or maybe helping others to see the glass half empty for 30 years, right? Or maybe yours would simply say, it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
right? That's your mission statement in life. It's good enough. When we talk about this idea of a shadow mission, what we're saying is it's, it's scary what kind of diminished expectations you can settle on for your life. And I want to ask you this. How do we live for God's mission and not these darker shadow missions? I think the only answer is what we find here in the book of Ruth. By entrusting our own welfare into the hands of God. You know, here's the truth. Is that I think for many Christians, we're just takers. We just take. We take and take and take. And the truth is we don't give. We don't really ever give back. And the truth is, there's always a good excuse for why we don't give, right? It's, it's never the right time. It's never convenient. Our schedule's too busy. Financially, we're struggling. Oh, I've got kids to deal with. The list goes on and on as to why we primarily assume the posture of a taker and not a giver. But I think the truth is that it's not just a matter of timing. It's not just a matter of not having the resources. I think really it's a matter of faith, isn't it? It's a matter of faith. You know, when I look at the story of Ruth and see her sacrificial generosity toward her mother in life, think about her own situation. It was not exactly a good time for Ruth to think about serving others, right? She had just lost her own husband and became a widow. She was destitute herself. And yet, that was the profound level at which Ruth understood the grace of God in her life. God is going to take care of me. And so I'm going to take a step of faith and courage and say, I will take care of you, my mother-in-law. I think this is the faith step that God is inviting us to this day. To maybe put all the excuses that we have to being that agent of grace toward others in the face of God's grace toward us. To really take a step of faith and say, the truth is financially we're not doing so well right now. The truth is, sometimes I feel like my marriage is being held together by a shoestring. But when will it ever be the right time to pray that prayer of generosity and sacrifice and surrender and say, use me, Lord? Because I think we're all takers. We all have to be takers. There's no apology for that. We're all in a posture of needing from God. But what God says, even as you take from me, realize that I want to bless you to give to others. You know, I think, I was thinking about like watching the footage this last week with everything going on in the country. And I was sort of wondering how Christians around this country are responding to it. And I, I wonder, I think sometimes we just sort of shake our fists and go, ah, I'm so tired of this. You know? And we just gripe and throw stuff at the TV screen and say, this country is going to hell. And I wonder, for how many of us was it instead a conviction of, I need to get on my knees and intercede for this country that I love? 
and pray for the brokenness in our land. I wonder how many of you, your shadow mission in your marriage is just, I want to love my spouse enough, you know, just enough. Versus really seeing what God wants to do through you to love your spouse. I think this, again, becomes the invitation of faith. How much do I believe God is going to take care of my needs so that that frees me to be generous and giving toward others? Let's pray. As we uh, close out our service today, I want to invite you to think about what's happening here in the second chapter of Ruth. Um, we see both of these people, Ruth and Boaz, acting in this incredibly gracious and giving manner. And it's very easy to just simply dismiss it as, well, they're two no- very noble people. I admire them. Very admirable people. But is that really the message of Ruth, chapter 2? It's just look at what great people Ruth and Boaz were. I think there's a deeper message to be found in this chapter, which is to say, whatever you're going through in your life, find refuge under the shadow of God's wing, who has promised to take care of you and watch over you. And as you experience his loving care over you, what God is also saying to you is, and you are going to be the very agent of grace to someone else. I want to use you to bless others. And that also is an act of faith, isn't it? Because the truth is, when you just look in the mirror, you say, I'm not there yet, God. Why don't you come back in a few years when I feel like I got my life together? Why don't you, why don't you let me get through the season of my life and then I'll be available? And the truth is, I think when we start talking like that, the right timing never comes around, does it? There's always something else coming at us that seems to derail our ability to be used by him. And I think what God is saying is that surrender, that service to God, to be a blessing to others, to be that very agent to others is a step of faith that says things feel a little crazy in my life right now, God. I, I don't feel like I have the resources to make that commitment, but I take a step of faith. And I want to ask you this morning, What are the needs that are around you right now that you see? That maybe the truth is you're trying to avoid or dodge. Because the truth is it's messy. You don't want to get involved. Um, Maybe that need is right in your own home with your spouse, with your children. Maybe it's in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Maybe it's for a nation that's really hurting right now and fumbling for answers. And God is saying, I want to use the prayer of my saints to start changing the direction of this wayward country. I don't know. I don't know. But my prayer is that God would enlarge your heart and give you the faith to take that step and say, use me, God. In the same way that I have received so much of your love, so much of your grace, let me be that agent of grace to somebody else. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response?